Welcome to The Beauty Construct, where we find beauty through stories of resilience and empowerment. I'm your host, Brandi Williams, and today we are joined by Dr. Christy Funk. Now, when we think of female beauty, breasts are often part of the picture. But breasts are not just an adornment on a feminine figure. Breast health is at the epicenter of women's well-being. Christy is a renowned breast cancer surgeon and author of the best-selling book, Breasts, the Owner's Manual. The beauty in Dr. Funk's work is that she is kicking breast cancer's butt in ways it did not even see coming. Today, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. One of those things being ways that we can prevent breast cancer. Now, Christy, you're consistently featured on Good Morning America, The Doctors. You've been in numerous magazines. Bring us all up to speed. How did you get to where you are today? It all starts with my parents, obviously, as it does for all of us. But my mom, interestingly, unfortunately, when I was a baby, fell into an inexplicable coma. And she, this was in 1971. She had five kids under 13. She, at that time at UCLA, you know, prestigious hospital, 1971, there's nothing. They just stared at you in a coma and hope you'd wake up. There was no CT scan. They couldn't figure out why it happened. So she eventually, about after three weeks in this coma, woke up and she's been, um, she's had a hemiparesis my whole life. She can't move her right arm or leg, but man, can that woman live? Like she has displayed so much resilience and strength and beauty and gratitude that I really have no choice but to emulate that and do my best in this world to be just like her. And I bring that into my work with me every single day. And so I have a lot of gratitude for how I was raised and for my parents. But basically the circuitous route to becoming a breast cancer surgeon and being on Good Morning America, et cetera, like you were asking, started, I thought I would be an actress when I was really young. <laughs> like everyone in LA does. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. But, you know, <laughs> actually, I'm very grateful. My parents grew up quite poor in Connecticut, and um, it never occurred to them, like at four, when I was doing acting gigs in the mirror to myself, that they should get me an agent and try to do Like, that was never in their world. <laughs> so <laughs> I just did, like, the grammar school plays and then high school plays and eventually college. And I wanted to, um, once I was at Stanford, I wanted to put my theatrical skills into permanent use as a psychologist using drama and psychotherapy to help children recover from traumatic events or illness, et cetera. But apparently God had a way different plan because one night I was studying for a neuro biology final and it was not audible, but a voice overtook my thoughts. And it simply said, you're going to be a doctor. And I was like, oh, no, I think I might marry one, but I am not going to be one. (laughs) And then, no, the voice was like, "Um, no, you are going to be a doctor. And it really intruded my thoughts. It was an epiphany. And I had to accept that that was real, but I didn't have to listen. So the next couple of days, I finished up school that year and had already planned to go to Africa, Kenya for the whole summer as a short-term missionary. I taught religion and English in the in the bush. I lived in a dung hut and I was living with these people and kids who were so full of joy and love and laughter and light. And yet, of course, they were, you know, dirty and terrible dentition. And yet they were so joyful because at the core of it, they were still healthy. You know, they were living Mm. in a way that we would maybe wouldn't um, 
think of as healthy because they're, you know, part, they're not fully clothed and they look so like sure. dirty, but they, but they had joy. And that's where it really hit me that what chronic illness does is it steals our killer of joy. I think we all need moments like that to shift our perspectives. Completely. Yeah. I think without the occasional epiphanies, you're not broadening your perspective in your world. You're stuck in what has worked for you. So you're like, I'm comfortable here, you know? Mm -hmm. And this was a moment that pulled me out of my comfort zone. I had to move from the artsy part of Stanford to the sciencey part, <laughs> but I dove into pre-med and then went to med school, finished up my residency. And at the time, laparoscopy, like doing in, uh, surgery through tiny little holes, long instruments and a camera, you know, like a laparoscopic gallbladder, that kind of stuff. It was brand new. So my attendings, the people who were supposed to be teaching me, were elbowing me out of the way while we were trying to learn these techniques. So I basically graduated into the world as a surgeon, having some skills at laparoscopy, but knowing this was the future and I better use it if I really wanted to be a part of surgery forever. So I started a fellowship in what's called minimally invasive surgery. I was at Cedar sinai and the man running that fellowship also ran the breast center there. And he pulled me aside one day and he was like, um, this is so... I." I Love this man to pieces. So, but it is very male surgeon. He pulls me aside, ah, Christy. So, you know, this breast center is really fairly new and we've got five men over 50 running it. So uh, you're going to run it. <laughs> uh. I was like, oh, really? He's like, you have, you have breasts, so <laughs> you should run it. Your ovaries work. Come on. <laughs> and honestly, it was not my passion. My passion, believe it or not, was the stomach and the esophagus. I just love the way those organs take a stitch. And I like doing Nissen fund applications. <laughs> like that's, that was my master plan. But he derailed it a bit. He said, you know, no pressure. This is your life. You choose what you want to do. Just let me know by Friday. Mm. So <laughs> I, I was like, mm -hmm. all right. So I sat with that, prayed, thought, really introspected about it. And you know what? It came down to hubris. I really was like, it's just breast surgery. Like, that's easy, right? I could put your heart on bypass in 30 minutes. <laughs> not, not today, by the way. If you ever see me, don't ask me to even try to demonstrate how to do it. But back then, I was hot shot right out of residency. And I, I really was. I was a good general surgeon. So was there ever a moment where the voice in your head said, boobs? <laughs> you know, was that your moment, your waking moment saying, OK, that's what I have to do? The moment was realizing that while I thought breast surgery was easy, there was nothing easy about this sacred moment where a woman is given the worst news of her life. She feels like her life is threatened and in the balance. And you get to come alongside her and hold her hand through that moment into the light, into decision, into confidence. That takes skill. Mm. None of which I got from med school and residency, et cetera, but every bit of which I got from my upbringing. And so that was the moment. That was the moment when I was like, you know what? I do have something to give. Women probably don't care that I think breast surgery is easy because to them, this is the hardest moment of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I want to personalize things just for a moment. It, uh, this may be a bizarre question, but did it shift the way that you viewed your own breasts? Like for me, I've had a love-hate relationship with my breasts my whole life. Um, I remember at about 17 or 18, you know, the chicken cutlets, the little silicone patches that you slide into your bra. <laughs> well, course, I, yeah. I had like full chickens. And I would not go anywhere without these things. I wouldn't, I mean, I put them in my bathing suits. Uh, 
everywhere, everywhere. Um, until, um, I will confess, I decided to have breast surgery and, um, have implants put in, but it's always been this kind of love hate relationship when at the end of the day, they're just boobs, you know, they don't define who I am. I don't know that they necessarily make me more attractive, more appealing to men. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, I'm not sure, but how did it shift your your perspective on your own? Did it change in any way? Honestly, I have to say probably it didn't. And I think that's just the nature of being a surgeon at that point, right? I the, I have a different relationship to the entire body than your average woman would mm-hmm. having cut all parts of it open on other people. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I say that because so many people relate femininity to large breasts. I mean, that's kind of what society has taught us, right? I mean, you think of sex symbols like Oh, Pamela Anderson, Marilyn Monroe, they have large breasts, you know? So I just wonder if, um, you know, just personally, if that took off any pressure that you may have had on yourself or how you viewed your own breasts, because you see what these women are going through. And at the end of the day, they just want to live. They don't care what they look like. Oh, they care very much what they look like. You think so at that moment, at that moment, don't they just want to be healthy? Many with what I would deem like the most, um, pragmatic view of it all really just wants to get through the moment. But I, those women, I say, guess what? You're going to live. You will get through this moment. And I don't need you looking in the mirror going funk (laughs) because you hate the way you look. So I'm going to take over caring about how you look. Um, But no, many are very worried. Yeah. They, how much of my breast are you taking? Can you show me? Can you draw out what's a lumpectomy for me? Like how much breast is that? Because Nobody barters like that with their colon when they have colon <laughs> cancer. <laughs> All right. What's it going to look like after? Of course. And I can understand that afterwards. Absolutely afterwards. But I would think in that moment that um, that they would just be concerned with the cancer. But that's interesting. Well, it, Brandy, that was a perfect point because it harkens back to what you're saying. So many people have confusing relationships with their breasts, right? Because on the one hand, they hold the life-giving power of nursing a newborn sustaining its life. They have uh, the sexuality power to attract a man or woman, Mm -hmm. depending on who you're attracted to back. And at the same level, they have the power to take your life away. So these are interesting organs, these breasts of ours, that conjure up a mixed emotional response because of their varied, whether symbolic or real, right? Cancer is real. Breast milk is real. And then the femininity, sexuality function that breasts play in this world is our perception of it all. When you get breast cancer, depending on what your relationship was to your breast, that challenges whatever kind of paradigm or thoughts you had surrounding your breast. Like, how could they betray you? Or, or I knew this was going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like you get it all, all sorts of responses. Mm-hmm. Sure. And like I said, I can definitely understand, you know, afterwards, the first time they get that glimpse in the mirror has got to be devastating because I mean, a big part of womanhood is defined by our breasts. So I, I totally understand that. And what is that like afterwards when you have to do post-ops with your patients? I mean, do a lot of them suffer from like body disfiguration or are they just glad to have the breast tissue removed or what do they say? It varies so much by each individual because some operations are so minimal. Even if it's cancer, the cancer was small. The breast amount is large enough that they can't even tell that anything happened. So they feel fine visually inside their own skin. So, I mean, let me just put things in layman's terms here, uh, make it very black and white and just ask you, well, how do we keep our breasts from trying to kill us? I mean, you're (laughs) seeing women every day who are being diagnosed with breast cancer. I don't want to be one of those 
women. I want the rates to decrease. So how can we try our damnedest to prevent it? I love this question because you're going to love the answer. Only 5 to 10% of all breast cancer on planet Earth, of which there are 1.7 million invasive breast cancers diagnosed annually, only 5 to 10% of all that cancer comes from an inherited genetic mutation like BRCA, right? BRCA, check two of those things. Mm -hmm. That is borne out by the fact that 87% of all women diagnosed with breast cancer do not have a single first degree relative with breast cancer. Mm. So this idea that it's either in your genes or not, or it's up to fate or not, is only true for an extremely small subset. And even then we may have some wiggle room, but if only five to 10% is coming from mutations, maybe I'll give five to 10% to, wow, that's kind of crazy and inexplicable. She was so young, she did everything right. And yet here's the cancer. We're still looking at a solid 80 to 90% of all breast cancer on planet earth at the biggest thick part of this bell curve that isn't genetic. So what is it? And it turns out that it's our nutrition and lifestyle behaviors that have a dramatic effect on whether or not our breast cells stay healthy or turn malignant. Every single time we make decisions throughout the day to eat this and not that, think this way and not that way, move this way or sit on the couch, every time we're taking steps toward cancer or away from cancer. So we have so much more control over this disease than the vast majority of women have ever been taught to think. And I know you talk about that in your book. I have your book here, Breasts, the Owner's Manual. You look beautiful on it, by the way. Why, thank you. And you have several things written on the, uh, on the cover. Every Woman's Guide to Reducing Cancer Risk, Making Treatment Choices, and Optimizing Outcomes. Um, so you, took a, you talk about all sorts of things in the book, and um, you talk a lot about diet and nutrition, which you just mentioned. Now, I know that you, uh, you recently went vegan, right? Like full-on plant-based diet. Yes, I did. My three sons and my husband did all in one day. And I can tell you what happened. So I was writing this book, the book we're talking about, Breast, the Owner's Manual. And I did a deep dive into all of the nutritional science because every single fact I wrote in that book, I wanted you to be able to fact check me. I have 80 pages of over 1600 references in the back. And even though it doesn't read like a science textbook, those Facts are well-researched and they're true. I needed to be right. I, I couldn't put out false information. And it's also just my personality to be, this makes me a delight to be married to because I always need to be right. <laughs> so <laughs> I do this deep dive into nutritional science, which one quick thought, no MD has ever gotten any nutrition throughout all of their training. It's not a part of the curriculum. Mm. So you grow up to become this doctor, whether you're an internist, dermatologist, surgeon like me, and you don't actually think what you eat matters. Mm. Because if it mattered so much, someone would have told me in the last 30 years I was studying, right? But yeah, we always hear nutrition is medicine. We hear that, but not from MDs. Funny. Not from your doctor. Like yeah. if you, maybe, I mean, there are functional medicine. The, the, the tide is turning and people in the medical community are understanding this, but far and away, like most are not yet getting it because they're busy doing what they were taught to do, right? And they do that well, but that is pills and procedures. That's mm -hmm. where it's at. Mm -hmm. That's that's where the money is. Okay, back to said deep dive. Now I'm rummaging around in this massive world of hundreds of thousands of peer-reviewed journal articles, right? This, these, this isn't like in Hokey Mushroom Magazine, right? This is the Lancet and these journals that we all respect. And I am blown away by the clear cut evidence 
that the cellular response to consuming animal protein and animal fat is everything that cancer and all illness requires and everything that keeps us from living our healthiest, most fruitful lives. Things like estrogen levels skyrocket, growth hormone goes through the roof, free radicals abound, DNA damage happens, inflammation is everywhere, angiogenesis happens. So angio blood vessel genesis creation is just the birth of new blood vessels. Every single cancer cell must do this angiogenesis thing in order to survive. It brings new blood flow with nutrients. And then when it gets big enough as a cancer, boom, exit strategy straight through that same blood vessel to lung, liver, brain, or bone. So animal protein and animal fat creates a micro environment. Think of it as like a little baby bathtub that every cell in your body is bathing in. And that micro environment is either screaming out pro-cancer when you eat animal fat and animal protein or anti-cancer when you eat plants. Also scientifically shown. Like I'm going to use this one example because I promise it will change your eating for the rest of your life. You will never forget this study I'm about to say. Okay. So they took 100 men and women and they gave them a standard American diet for breakfast. So pancakes and eggs, uh, bacon, pancakes and bacon, steak and eggs, right? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Measured their blood levels of LDL cholesterol hourly. It's a measure of oxidative stress. Oxidation is sort of this mandatory reaction every time we eat. And it's happening all day long on some level. But it's a battle between free radicals that are helping digest the meal and doing other useful things like helping you breathe and fixing a cut when you get, you know, bringing inflammation to the area to heal and repair you. But in excess, now it's damaging your DNA and causing illness. It's building up plaque in your arteries so you have a heart attack or a stroke, right? So you need to quell that oxidative madness with antioxidants, which only come from one place on earth, plants. So oxidative, I'm sorry, oxidized LDL is measured hourly in these people as a measure of that stress reaction. Up, 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 lunch. Hamburger and fries. Up, 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 dinner. So every single night, these people are going to bed with fewer antioxidants than when they woke up. They are losing the stress battle here. Decades go by and your killer eventually has to show up. There's only so much of that your body can take. So if it's cardiovascular disease, hello, heart attack. If it's the vessels in your brain, Alzheimer's. If it's the cells in your breast, breast cancer. Here's the amazing part. Next day, same people. Same sad meal, standard American diet, one change, a cup of strawberries, up, up, down, down, baseline, hamburger and fries, one cup of strawberries, up, up, down, down, baseline. Wow. Like just the power, the plant power, these phytochemicals, these plant-based nutrients that exist in a strawberry, you just chewed and swallowed it. But it got absorbed into your bloodstream when coursing throughout your body, saturating the cells with anti-inflammatory power, with anti-carcinogenic, with anti-DNA breakage power. What if the meal had been steel-cut oats and blueberries or my amazing antioxidant smoothie on page 69 of the book, right? (laughs) (laughs) What if then that oxidative battle for that meal would have been over like, boop, pretty soon. And now until your next meal, All those nutrients are running around your body, literally stopping the progression of disease and often reversing existing disease, seeing that a little, little tiny, tiny cancer cells trying to make a little blood vessel come to it. 
bam, nope, I think I'll just stop that, thank you, <laughs> with some sulforaphane power from the broccoli I just chewed. And this is all proven. This mm-hmm. isn't like sci-fi what if plants could do this. They do this. Let me play devil's advocate just for a minute, because I know some of our listeners right now are thinking this. Uh, people have been eating meat for years. Years and years. And I'm certain that there's people out there that would listen to that and argue, okay, well, back in the day, it was normal. It was natural for our ancestors to eat meats. They survived. They didn't die from cancer. Maybe some did, but some didn't. So we should be able to eat it too. Or do you think that over the years, and yes, we're talking, you know, thousands and thousands, thousands of years, the way that our animals are treated, what they're fed, um, how they're slaughtered. Do you think that those things may contribute to the increase in cancer rates? Oh, absolutely it does. Our meat is nothing like the meat of thousands of years ago. So we can talk keto and paleo, for example, from years, years ago. So if we go back to hunter-gatherers, right? Because that's the whole idea of paleo is we're eating the way the hunter-gatherers did. So my husband, who is an Ironman athlete, so I'm not saying that he's wimpy or anything, but I don't think that guy can run like a cheetah and take down some like antelope galloping around, right? Like, (laughs) yeah. so I I would say if we are bringing it back to be real, that 100,000 years ago or whenever, millions, whatever we're talking about, um, I would be the reason we were alive with my gathering capabilities of berries and other plants from the (laughs) earth. So I don't know exactly, you know, the whole idea, idea of killing animals anyway really was only the latter half of the paleo period because that's when they developed spears prior to that i'm pretty sure they were eating plants because we have literally 32 vegetable grinders for teeth we don't have spears we weren't meant to pull the flesh off in but back to what the real issue with meat is that this is not the same meat at all and animal cruelty aside the animals themselves are genetically modified mm-hmm. to grow larger or to produce more meat, milk, and eggs than they ever naturally could, would, or should. Like chickens are stuffed so full that their bodies, their meat mass grows so fast because of the antibiotics and the hormones and all of the other things that are put their GMO feed, genetically modified feed, is so pesticide-laden, antibiotics. 80% of the antibiotics on planet Earth are given to animals, not people. And that is why we're quickly running into the problem of, you know, superbug resistance. But these animals themselves are genetically engineered to grow fat fast and make way more food than they ever would. And then they're fed this GMO feed that is heavily contaminated. And then you're eating it. So this isn't small quantities of totally organic, like some cow that had 5,000 acres to itself, right? Like Mm -hmm. that idea well what if you can afford that kind of meat well all right you probably wouldn't have as long as it was small quantities if you look at the blue zones if you look at the five longest living peoples on planet earth which dan butner did with national geographic he's lived with these five different peoples deduced nine commonalities amongst them and one of the things across the board was that over 95 percent of what these centenarians these are the people who live the longest on life 100 plus and they live well they're autonomous, they've cooked themselves, they're sharp-minded, they're not on any medications, right? These are, it's worth living to 110 because they're not in Alzheimer's and repeating themselves and not knowing who you are. So the main diet of all of them was plant-based, over 95% of what they ate. And when they ate meat, it was mm, three to four ounces, three to four times a month. So yes, meat like that will not create an overwhelming cellular response that begets cancer. But what people don't realize 
is where their meat comes from and how it's made and what's in it. So sure. Xeranol is the most potent synthetic estrogen man-made thing on planet Earth. And Xeranol is injected behind the ear of a calf, all conventionally raised meat, of which is 94% of the meat in America, has Xeranol in it. They shove it behind the ear to make the cow grow fat fast because it only has uh, about a year and a half to make it to about 1,500 pounds in time for slaughter. Mm -hmm. So this accelerates that growth. There was a study of 174 New Jersey young girls, 11 to 13 years old. They tested their urine and there was Xeranol in all of the people who had had meat before the night before. Mm. So it gets into our bodies. It is one of the causes most likely of precocious puberty. The fact that our puberty is changing rapidly to be uh, like 10 years old now. And we're exposed to all of these estrogens that our bodies were never exposed to before. And estrogen feeds and fuels 80% of all breast cancer. So it is definitely, I mean, all the animal cruelty, climate change, biodiversity loss, water pollution, water scarcity, pesticide use. We can leave all of that aside. If you want to think about why you should not eat meat, think of yourself. Because your life is really in the balance. And we've known this. Apparently, I'm going to tell one more study that will blow your mind that blew mine. And it was when I was writing my book that I came across a study in The Lancet, okay, the world's most prestigious medical journal. It was not an obscure, tiny journal by Dean Ornish, July 1990. I went to med school in 1992. I did not come across the study until I was writing my own book in 2017. So for 30 years, you're about to find out that not a single person on planet Earth needed to die from a heart attack, that we have already known how to stop the number one killer of you and everybody you love. So Dean Ornish took uh, about 48, 50 people who were cardiac cripples. They're sent home to die. There's no more. They're like on oxygen and wheelchairs. They have no more veins for bypass. There's no more new medications to give them. And he does angiograms on them, right? Injects dye, looks at their heart vessels and like there's barely any blood getting through. Divides them up. Half of them stay the course, just meds as usual. The other half, whole food, plant-based diet and some other healthy lifestyle behaviors. They come back a year later, repeat the angiogram. Well, by the way, those in the control group that could come back because they weren't dead came back and all their arterial plugging had gotten worse. The intervention group, 82% blood vessels wide open, reversed, didn't prevent the progression. He reversed the number one killer of human beings in 1990. Angiographic, picture-perfect proof with plants. Not one new medication, not one more bypass, broccoli. Wow. And this has been repeated by others. It wasn't a one-off. He didn't, you know, mess with his data, and it isn't true. Uh, It's been repeated. It's true. So much data that I was just overwhelmed by it to the point where I'd had enough. Like, when I heard my kids came home from school, I could hear. So I have a little parenting tip for anybody listening. Um, the way I wrote my book, because it took so many hours and I still had to work full time, is I took Fridays off and then I would just write like 16 hours a day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I didn't parent at all for a year. Mm. So um, I felt guilty this one particular Friday. Sure, that had to be hard. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. Um, yeah, I took the kids to third grade. I took the day off just to make sure I was there because I had missed second grade. And I was walking in and then one of the moms was like, oh, who was Justin's teacher last year? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, He's in third grade, isn't he? He made it. I guess we're going. Okay. Anyway, um, this particular day, though, I had run downstairs to make their lunch because I wanted to be all like involved mom for half an hour. 
So I make their lunch, off they go, and I go back up and I'm writing the nutrition stuff, studying, and I'm looking at this study. It's not a study, it's a group, the IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer. They are unbought, right? Nobody pays them to be like, hey, can you just kind of make it look like cigarettes are okay? So they are the people, the group in the world that puts things on lists as absolutely or probably or possibly carcinogenic to humans, okay? Mm -hmm. So these 22 researchers from 10 different countries look over 800 epidemiologic studies in July 2015. They're in Lyon, France, and they are asked to answer two questions. Does red meat cause cancer and does processed meat cause cancer? And they overwhelmingly decided that all processed meat... Process like salami, pepperoni, sausages, hot dogs, hams. Yeah, salami, pepperoni, deli meat, cold cuts, corned beef. The whole thing that blew my mind though is that includes your organic turkey breast and slices or the chicken slices that you get from deli. This is processed food. Yeah, I've heard that that's worse than smoking cigarettes. That's what I've heard, but continue. It is on the same list. So it's absolutely carcinogenic with cigarettes, with plutonium, with asbestos, and then. The turkey slices. The red meat is probably carcinogenic. And um, we do know when it comes to colorectal, pancreatic, prostate, gastric, that red meat does cause those cancers. But um, processed meat is so bad that it was on this list. And this is the lunch I had given the kids. Well, it's hard because kids are so picky. I mean, what is the diet of a typical American child? Let's see. Uh, snackables. Pizza. Yeah. yeah, snackables, chicken tenders, uh, grilled cheese, macaroni and cheese from a box, craft preferably. Uh, <laughs> you know, so all of those things are against um, everything that you're now preaching. So what, well, exactly. I mean, what was that shift like for your kids? Well, so this particular day, I'd sent them to school with, get this, a mozzarella stick with the turkey breast, wrapped it up like I should have just wrapped up a cigarette, a homemade cigarette instead, but I wrapped it up and then put it all around a, a lettuce leaf around it and put it in no bread, <laughs> right? So <laughs> they come home. I am done now. I run downstairs. I'm like, boys, 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 come. They come over to the fridge and with terrific flair from my drama days, I fling open the refrigerator doors and I declare, boys, we're going vegan. <laughs> And they're like, yeah, what is vegan? So, (laughs) so cute. So we literally fill four bags. And that's what I want listeners to know. I was right there with you. I went into the science to prove the way I ate was correct, which was largely Mediterranean diet style. I never ate the Kraft macaroni or chicken tenders really my whole life. I knew that stuff was bad, but I had a ton of chicken, turkey and fish, you know, lean meat, fruits and veggies, but avoided all of the very healthy starchy carbs. So, you know, even butternut squash, but I never have pasta, even if it's whole grain, right? Which is the thing. Whole grains have a litany of antioxidant and anti-cancer protection that you're missing out on if you're not eating them. And they're so intertwined with all of these nutrients and fibers that you're not spiking blood sugar. It's not making you fat. But I didn't understand that. I just was following the sort of Atkins ideas of when I was 20s. Yeah. And my um, bags were filled to the brim with my therapy drawer, Manchego, five-year age Gouda, my Brie, right? So I had my fancy cheeses that literally were like, stay away, mom's drawer. Um, a salmon filet, we'd open up the freezer and there's veggie burgers with cheese and milk. It's like, it's ubiquitous. It's fine. This animal 
products find their way into everything. Mm-hmm. Fill the bags up, bring in a mile away to my 85-year-old parents and say, here, it's too late for you. <laughs> <laughs> that night we watched What the Health. I actually took the time. It was like the only thing I watched that whole year. We watched What the Health, and I recommend this highly Netflix documentary. And the boys got it. Like, bam. Uh, so it was cold turkey for them, too. Yes, it was. No pun intended. Ah, it was a good one. <laughs> I caught it. If you think of 21 meals a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Think about maybe just making one meal a day totally plant-based so that you get used to the idea of how to make it still taste delicious and be nutritious and filling without the meat. There's some controversial aspects of your book, and one of them is a link to diet and nutrition, and that is your outlook on soy. You are very, very pro-soy, which does give us protein if we decide to live a vegan lifestyle. But a lot of people say that, especially for women, that you want to stay away from soy because it does affect our breast health. Right. So here's the real deal on soy. I, again writing my book. I was, I don't know what, how I was not smart apparently before I wrote my book. I am totally really smart now. When I went into the literature to write about soy, I was trying, my point was to pull the science. Remember I was going to back every word I said with science. I was Mm -hmm. pulling out the science to show my point. Stay away from soy, spit the miso out of your mouth. That's what I've been telling my patients for 18 years was that soy was bad for you. It was a phytoestrogen, plant-based estrogen. We didn't know what that molecule was doing inside your body, so spit it out. No miso for you. Oh my gosh, embarrassingly wrong. I, for the first time in my life, I have to say, I just knee-jerk responded to knowing that there was a phyto plant estrogen in soy. I didn't really look into it. It just made an assumption that was so wrong. I mean, in my defense and in other doctors' defenses, prior to 2009, there were no studies on soy in human consumption. And if you looked at the data in Petri dishes and in mice, you would find it kind of falling all over the place, still mostly pro-soy, but one out of 10, say, in this one study of mice grafted with breast cancer fed soy, one in 10 breast cancers would grow. So I took that and was sort of like, hey, you could be with the one in 10. How much do you like get a mommy? Like, just stop it. So now, I love though, edamame, by the way. <laughs> the best. And now I don't know what I'd do without soy milk or tofu. But I, at the time, took, went into the literature and realized, whoa, okay, the quick biochem lesson, because this is worth it. This is going to make you realize that if you're an anti-soy person for the reason of estrogens, um, you can join us on the enlightened side. So you have two receptors in your body for estrogen, alpha and beta. Alpha is attached to the cancer cell. When your own estrogen hits alpha, it sends a signal to the cell to multiply and divide. That's bad because that's cancer dividing. Beta, on the other hand, is preferred by genistein and the other isoflavones in soy, 1600% over alpha. And what happens when soy hits beta is amazing. Number one, it shuts alpha down, knocking off your cancer estrogen receptor. And it goes out into the peripheral fat cells where you have an enzyme that's busy in your fat, turning other steroids like testosterone into estrogen. And it shuts the enzyme down. So you're yet again making less estrogen. Are these all cancers or just breast cancer? That it decreases the risk of it decreases soy consumption, decreases prostate cancer by 70% and the incidence of breast cancer by 60% because those are both hormonally driven cancers, but it won't decrease like gastric cancer or melanoma. So I show you all the studies where it soy consumption decreases breast cancer from 
occurring. But what if you've already had it? And what if you are on tamoxifen, the estrogen blocker? And it's really a big deal if you're on, if you're getting these phytoestrogens and they're fueling your cancer. Now we have studies for you too. So 6,200 multi-ethnic th- survivors were followed over nine years. There was a 51% drop in death for the estrogen negative cancers and a 32% drop in death for the estrogen positive cancers. Wow. There's like on other studies show a 60% drop in recurrence. So soy is not only breast protective. Once you have breast cancer, it protects against or reduces the odds of recurrence and death. So certainly soy it up. So what are the best soys <laughs> you want to do non-GMO? So soy and corn are our two crops that are so heavily laden with glyphosate, herbicide, pesticides, that you really want to stay organic as much as you can with anything corn and soy derived. And you would be shocked to find out where corn makes its way into almost every product from toothpaste onward. Like it's crazy. But the point is, it's not hard to find organic or at least non-GMO soy products. And Mm -hmm. the ones that kind of give you the most power are fermented. And that's like miso, tempeh, natto, and tamari. But the next level, minimally processed, is still extreme. That's where all the study data came. People weren't eating natto. That stuff's really hard to get down. Um, They were having tofu, soy milk, edamame, soybeans. So the kind of normal soy stuff that you're fine with. The processed soy protein isolate that's used as a filler, kind of like a meat substitute in some of these vegan burgers and stuff, it doesn't necessarily have any bad effects, but it's so divorced from the amazing molecules that it used to have altogether as an edamame bean or whatever, that um, it has no real benefit. So don't that doesn't count. When you're trying to get your soy in, you got to stay with the ones I already said. It's fascinating information, whether you want to, you know, agree or disagree with it. I mean, the proof sounds like it's pretty much in the pudding there and it's absolutely fascinating. Something else that you talk about in the book is kind of debunking myths. And there are a lot of myths out there. And so many people are scared of so many things. You know, this is going to give me cancer. I heard this gives me cancer. This person got cancer from this. I want to stay away uh, from it. So I want to debunk some of them um, with you for those who haven't uh, they, they haven't read your book yet. One of them is aluminum and deodorants. That's going to give us cancer. Yeah, there's. I really searched hard for the evidence for that because intuitively it kind of sounds like it would be right, right? Like, But you can officially slow down your search for the natural substitute unless you want to find one. That's fine. I have most of my patients who go all natural are awfully stinky, but I mm. love them anyway. Um, it turns out that the theory, the idea that antiperspirants block the pores, you know, with aluminum chlorohydrate so that they can't release sweat and then they, you don't get bacterial buildup and odor. And you would think that that blockage, the pore plugging aluminum would get absorbed and create estrogen-like activity, become one of these estrogen mimicking compounds in our bodies. But basically there's no science behind that. There was a 2014 systematic review of all the peer-reviewed literature on this subject regarding the potential health risks posed by aluminum. And they concluded that absolutely no such relationship exists. Hmm. So, I mean, you could go on and think, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not the aluminum, maybe it's parabens, but parabens actually aren't used in deodorant and uh, antiperspirant anymore. So it's kind of a, not an ongoing concern because we don't use those anymore. Parabens, however, I will say were found inside breast tumors in a large study, what they did there and how they got there, nobody knows. So just having them show up in a tumor doesn't prove causation. So basically I tell people whatever they want to put on their armpits does not make me sweat. (laughs) 
Hey, that's a good way of putting it. Um, Something else you talk about is something called methylfolate, which I had to look up. I didn't know anything about, but we all should. We should. I love methylfolate and I'll tell you why. So I'm going to tell you real quick there. If you think about your breast health as in the balance of scales, there are boulders that push you toward or away from breast cancer and there are pebbles. So pebbles can certainly shift the scale. But if you've got a boulder on that side, it's not going to have much of an effect. So the four boulders that really matter the most because they have scientific rigorous proof of causation of breast cancer are diet, nutrition, alcohol, exercise, and obesity. So what we're talking about with methylfolate comes into the alcohol discussion. Alcohol increases estrogen levels and it impairs the immune system and it inactivates folic acid. We all have this enzyme MTHFR that is, sounds like a bad word, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that converts folic acid into methylfolate. So methylfolate is the activated form that runs around and fixes DNA when it goes awry. And as much as I said at the top of the show that most breast cancer is not genetic, I was meaning inherited genetics, right? All cancer is a genetic mutation at its DNA core. It's a cell that goes awry. But um, the methylfolate will fix that DNA when it goes awry in, you know, intact immune system and functioning person. So alcohol inactivates the enzyme so much so that, okay, first of all, alcohol, let's talk about that for a second. 14 grams of alcohol is a 12 ounce can of beer is five ounces of wine is 1.5 ounces of hard liquor. So listeners, pick your poison and a drink a day increases breast cancer by 10%, two drinks a day, 30%, three drinks a day, 40%. And you can add another 10% thereafter. And if you hit more than three a day, you should probably think about calling a doctor. Wow. But I will say that there are a couple of workarounds. People might be thoughtfully protesting saying, wait a minute, I thought that a drink a day kept heart attacks away. And you would be right. There's one big study that looked at red wine in particular and four to eight ounces, not more, not less, four to eight ounces of red wine daily dropped all cause mortality by 24% and included breast cancer in those drinkers. So I'm not advocating to start drinking if you don't all in the name of breast or heart health. But I will say what the weapon in there is resveratrol, which is a powerful antioxidant that inhibits all the requirements for cancer to form. Initiation, promotion, progression, it all gets stopped by resveratrol, which you can get from the skin of red grapes. So you don't have to drink red wine. Some of us may choose to, but it's the red grapes with the seeds. So not, not, the good, not, not that easy to eat, but you can still eat those and get all the benefits. The other benefit of red wine is it has an aromatase inhibitor function, which is that fat cell thing that I was talking about converting estrogen. So it decreases that. But methylfolate in the nurse's health study, which looked at, um, there were like 32,000 women in the study. They pulled out all of the drinkers and they compared those who drink one or more alcoholic drinks a day. They all did that, right? But they looked at the folate intake. So those who had 600 micrograms a day or more of folate from cruciferous vegetables and broccoli, et cetera, had 89% less breast cancer than those who didn't consume the folate. So in other words, of all the things that alcohol can do to lead to cancer formation, the big daddy reason seems to be that inactivation of the MTHFR so you don't get methylfolate. So one workaround is actually if you choose to drink, for heart health, for social reasons, when you drink, you might want to supplement with methylfolate straight up because now you're replacing that 
powerful methylfolate instead because your MTHFR doesn't work. We've actually designed a supplement for people who drink or for the 30 to 50% of people who genetically are poor methylators. Their MTHFR is suboptimal just genetically, like almost half of people, which is kind of crazy. And then if you drink on top of it, it's really not helping you out. So our secret weapon number two is Cosmo Companion. And what this is, is a supplement containing methylfolate, B6 and B12. Those three things become glutathione in your body, which is the most powerful antioxidant we know about. And it also has a number of botanicals that support and protect your liver cells as they detox alcohol and they support glucose metabolism. So if you choose to drink, taking a supplement of straight up methylfolate or Cosmo Companion will help limit the damaging effects of alcohol. Hmm. I want to touch on something quickly just because we've talked so much about all different types of breasts, Um, whether you have breast implants, whether you've had mastectomies. um, We've talked about that throughout this conversation. And women who have breast implants, I feel like, um, are in a little bit of a state of fear ever since the FDA stated that textured implants are related to a rare form of lymphoma. I know that you have dealt with some patients who have uh, had these concerns. How do you feel about breast implants and the girls who have them who now think just because they have them, they have to have them removed? Right. So a couple of points that are key. One, this has been a recall of textured implants that are on shelves. So we're not putting them into people anymore, but it's not a recall out of bodies as if they will self-implode at the third year if you don't remove them. And the chances of getting this anaplastic large cell lymphoma associated with the implants. Right now, it's only the allergen ones that have the high risk. And at worst case estimates, it's going to be one in 2,000 women with the textured implants who develop this lymphoma. The other brands like Mentor is one in 86,000 and Sandra is one in 160,000. So the odds of those other two brands, super low. Like I wouldn't even think twice about that. The allergen ones, again, the risk being around one in 2,000, That means that over 99.9% of those women are never going to develop it. And by the way, it's not subtle. Like one breast becomes super swollen. If you notice that it's not fitting in the bra cup the same anymore, or if there's like a redness to the skin or a new lump, you see your doctor, the treatment and 100% cure is to remove the implant in the capsule, this little rind that forms around it. Now that's true of 85% of all the lymphomas. The other 15% needed chemotherapy. And unfortunately, there have been a small number of deaths reported worldwide. But those people or their doctors really were not recognizing the symptoms of ALCL because when caught early, which is not a subtle thing to catch, it's completely curable just by doing the thing you would do prophylactically, which is remove the implant in the capsule. Mm -hmm. So to these women, I give them the stats. I tell them that. And if they're still like, well, but I'm a warrior, you know, like a worry wart, not a a warrior. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, if they will worry, if it's keeping them up at night, if they now distrust their own breast because of the implants, then sure, you can always exchange them or just get rid of them. A lot of women too, they're like, "Mm, you know what, this one breast, ever since I breastfed, this one's lower and higher. There's some little tweak that they were wanting anyway. So they use the implant recall as a reason to just do it now rather than later. And so it's an individualized conversation, but the risk is very low. And with vigilance, meaning just check your breasts out you know, focus on them once a month to ask yourself, is one suddenly bigger than the other? Is there any redness? Is there anything weird here that's different? Yes, 
then go see your doctor. So the women who are thinking, you know, implants are dangerous and I need to have mine removed ASAP, they could think of it this way. You consistently, probably on a weekly basis, do uh, breast cancer reconstruction, right? And you're removing breast tissue, but putting in breast implants. So there's a level of safety that goes along with them. Not all breast implants are dangerous. Exactly. And they've never, ever been associated with breast cancer. This lymphoma thing is a lymphoma. Not It happens in the breast, but it's not breast cancer. So whether silicone or saline, it doesn't lead to breast cancer. In fact, a big study of over 3,000 women who had an implant augmentation showed that after 15 years, they had 31% less breast cancer than would have been expected. Wow. But it's not that the implant is like feeding them little antioxidants or anything. It's largely just because of who gets breast implants. Those women tend to be of uh, lower body mass index, and they tend to have children prior to age 30, which are both big factors that decrease breast cancer risk. Okay. So other ways to avoid or prevent breast cancer, obviously mammograms. So I just want to talk about that for a moment. Um, Breast self-examination, how important is that? How often should we be doing it? How often should we be getting mammograms? Super controversial. You thought you just asked a quick question. I can give you my quick answer because I can give you my answer at the top here, but then we can back up because there are a lot of different opinions from different societies and they are all right, so to speak. They're all looking at data, but interpreting it differently. My suggestion is that we begin mammography for normal risk women at age 40 and don't stop and don't skip years until you plan to die in the next five to 10 years which admittedly is a little hard to predict, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you are really crippled as a, you know, with cardiac disease or diabetes, and if you were to find a cancer, you couldn't even make it through an operation, like you shouldn't be checking. It's better not to know. And you're probably going to be dying of your heart attack or diabetes before this breast thing will ever get you. So, okay. But the age, the age of 40 Mm -hmm. is only for women who don't have a history in their family of breast cancer, correct? Correct. So I think between 21 and 25 years old, I think that all women should have an evaluation of their risk. So that includes genetics and testing when appropriate to assess whether they are at elevated risk for future breast cancer or not. And if you are at elevated risk, screening starts earlier and would include other modalities, including ultrasound and breast MRI, possibly. So you have to do your breast risk assessment somewhere in your early 20s so that you're being watched carefully if needed, more so than just average risk woman who can start at 40. How effective are self-examinations, like in the shower? That's what my OB has always told me. When you're in the shower, fill around. If you feel a lump, you know, call right away. Right. So they've been deemed highly ineffective, so much so that the American Cancer Society has said to stop doing self-breast examination. Mm. I heartily disagree. They also say that clinical breast exams are useless. So that's humbling for me since I do them all day long, twice a week on (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of women. But uh, here's what I think. I think all girls, young girls, starting when they start menstruating, so 11, 12, 13 years old, should start doing self-breast examinations once a month. One week after your period, that's when your breasts are smaller and less tender and less lumpy and confusing. It is a reportable phenomenon for a teenager to have breast cancer. I'm not trying to have these young girls be fearful that they're looking for actual cancers. What they're doing is becoming so casually familiar with the terrain of their breasts, the lumpy bumpiness, that they're not wigged out by them. There's way more, nine out of 10 patients will tell me, I don't do breast exams because my breasts wig me out. 
Everything mm-hmm. feels like a lump. Everything feels like cancer. I will be in here every single day. But that wouldn't have been the case if they had become so familiar with their breasts as they were developing. Look, you're with your breasts all day and all night. I am probably never with them. Or if you're my patient, I'm with them once or twice a year for five minutes. So you can be the person who saves your life if a cancer develops. If your fingers have this unconscious memory of the terrain, then one day, hopefully never, but I, it happens all the time. You just stop on a lump and you're like, mm, that was not there last month. And you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think young girls should do self-breast exams. And then you start clinical breast exams with a doctor. You're usually the OB-GYN at age 21. And you do those every three years. And then when you're 40, you're going to add in the imaging. Is it harder for women who have implants? It's easier. You know why? Your okay. rib cage is kind of bumpy and the implant creates this smooth, even surface upon which you're pushing. So it's easier to feel the breast tissue. You mentioned women who are so fearful of cancer that they wouldn't want to do a self-examination. I'm certain those are the same women who don't want to have a mammogram because they're afraid of them. Tell the listeners who have never experienced one what that process is like. Is it scary? Does it hurt? Right. Well, it may be scary because you're scared of the results, but the process itself, you disrobe from the waist up, you're going to be given some kind of gown. So it's covering your back and your arms. So you're really just exposed in the front and you place your breast on a little plate and then a top plate comes down and compresses it to a thickness that will give us a good view of the tissue inside. And so you're held in that squashed position while the tech does the mammogram for about 20 seconds. And then you'd get it two different angles on the breast, each side. So there's usually just four pictures taken and then you're released and you're good to go. The majority of women say that mammograms don't hurt very much. Those who do have pain with a mammogram, it's usually dissipates within minutes. And a small percent will say that really, really hurt and still hurts like a week later. So to everybody, this is what I tell them. If you can, time getting your mammogram, if you menstruate to the third week, that's when the image is going to be best quality in terms of seeing what's in there and you're going to be less tender. And if you're a little squeamish, pop two or three ibuprofen 30 minutes before. Okay. It'll decrease the compression discomfort. Good stuff. All good stuff. Mm -hmm. As we wrap things up here, we mentioned your book earlier. I just want to mention it again. Breasts, the owner's manual, obviously still available. We can get it where? Anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And I'd also like to let the listeners know about the Cancer Kicking Summit that I have going on. You can find out more at pinklotus.com slash summit. But what this is, is a two-day retreat where we do a deep dive into the soil of your life, rooting around in there, getting rid of the things that aren't working right, that are dysfunctional, infusing it with some awesome fertilizer and social connectedness. And then we basically plant nine seeds into this soil that will sprout up an orchard of life that was going to yield your most fruitful, bountiful existence that you ever thought possible or imagined. So we talk a lot about thinking, about eating, fasting, meditating, believing, loving, and relationships. I feel very strongly that what's happening on a micro level inside of our bodies as cancer tries to develop, basically cancer is an isolated cell. It's lost its cross-talking. It's lost its communication. It's lost its community, the normal breast it used to be. It's become deranged. It's out of control. It's not 
following orders anymore. And on a macro level, we women are sometimes doing the exact same thing as that cancer cell. We're pulling out of community and we're living alone and lonely. We get depressed and anxious. We work hard. We stay up late. We drink too much. We eat too much. We're not living social, loving, connected lives. And this conference is meant to restore balance and community and wholeness to every woman. And if women can't make it, you also created a community online for women who are dealing with breast cancer, right? I did. Actually, with the summit, by the way, there's on-demand video. So you can just attend via your couch. Oh, cool. Yeah. But oh, Power Up is an amazing community online for social support and connectedness. There's a ton of resources in the forms of blogs and videos. So check it out, pinklotus.com slash power up and join. There's all the functionality of things you recognize, like Facebook, crowd cause is like GoFundMe, but cheaper. There's Breastlist, which is Craigslist, uh, like in that people buy, sell, trade, give away. They're gently used scarves, hats, wigs, surgical bras, and Breast Buddies, which is an amazing matching system. You'll go in there as a newly diagnosed woman, put in something like 32 years old, mastectomy, chemotherapy, and like match.com, all the 32 plus or minus five years uh, with your stage of cancer and your treatment choices will pop up. And they're there because they've been there, done that. They're there because they want to become your sacred sister in this journey. And you can look and be like, oh, wait, she is a 10-year-old. I want to talk to her. I have a nine-year-old. So check out Power Up. So great talking to you, Christy. Thank you so much for sharing all of that very interesting information. I have to believe like me, our listeners out there will find this information to be empowering and hopefully they will want to share it with each and every woman that they have in their life that they absolutely love. And to the listeners, you can check out those antioxidant rich food recipes, as well as the other cancer myth busters that I mentioned in the interview in Christie's book, Breast the Owner's Manual. We will have a link to her book and her summit that she mentioned on our website. Thank you for paying attention and being present in this moment. May you continue to practice mindfulness today, tomorrow, and always. Coming up on the next episode of The Beauty Construct. Anxiety comes in so many different forms and severity levels. Someone with really severe anxiety, when they're in the thick of it, they feel like their world is about to end. The Beauty Construct is brought to you by Salvasa. Learn more at salvasalife.com. Salvasa.